Greetings, Ray's community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Cheryl Webster-Krauntz, who currently serves as the Vice President of Advancement and Executive Director of the Salem State University Foundation. Welcome, Cheryl. Thank you. Happy to be here with you, Brent. Well, you are in the midst of kicking off a campaign that I'm going to guess is called Meet the Moment. And... (laughs) Uh, also recently had a giving day. And so this is going to be a reprieve from all of those activities. And we're just going to go for a little walk down memory lane while saving time to talk about the future as well. I love hearing about the higher education journey of our guests. And so why don't you take me back to junior year of high school? Who was that Cheryl? What was she into? And what led her to State University of New York at Oswego? Yeah, so um, I was, what you probably don't know, is I was a phonathon caller for five semesters in a row, and I was top caller all five semesters. So I like to say fundraising started in college um, for me, if you can believe that. Um, but I got to, I mean, what led you to college? And sure. at what point did you even learn what a phonathon caller might be? Yeah, so I kind of fell into that. But um Actually, I am first generation college student. So um, from a very young age, I was told I was going to college. I didn't really have a choice. Um, But I was also one of those people that paid for their own college. So um, college for me was um, truly a transformation, I think. Um, And partly why I think I resonate so much with the Salem State University mission. Um, Our students are very similar to kind of my experience. Um, But, you know, I had a very humble upbringing uh, farm country, uh, you know, was a top of my class. This will be funny. Um, was the top third in my class, but uh, there were only 40 students. So, you know, being third in the class in 40 is not really all that much of an accomplishment. But, um, you know, I was um, involved in everything. And I think that kind of led into college. You know, I, I was in, involved in as much as I could be while I was in college. I tried to get as much as I could out of the experience knowing, um, number one, that I was paying for it. And two, um, I knew that it was probably the last opportunity that I'd have to be amongst peers, uh, such a large group of peers, um, to have so much fun and to really get the most out of college. So, um, you know, I like to say I went to, I went to college, um, to, you know, get experience and to, um, grow, um, but I never left college. <laughs> I still work for a college. So you've literally never left college. Uh, literally never left college, and I so, still love the college environment and the learning that happens and the work that we do. So, so tell me a little bit more about your first gen experience. And as a reminder, I graduated from a public high school in rural Iowa with sixty-seven kids. So rarely do I get to host guests who have a smaller graduating uh, public <laughs> high school class than, than me, um, but, and, and also was, was first gen and, and absolutely that drives why, why I'm doing what I'm doing today. But, but just tell me more about that first gen experience and, you know, both why you're, you were pushed to, to go to college, which is a huge uh, positive influence for uh, first gen students. And then ultimately what, what stood out during that kind of adjustment period. You know, um, I think my parents, though they didn't get a college degree valued and saw what a college degree could do for you, um, and in terms of advancing your life and social mobility and all that. Um, so they were extremely supportive of the, um, you know, of the process of getting there and um, getting good grades. Um, that was really important uh, in our household. Um, 
I think there was a huge adjustment period for me when I got to college. Um, you know, it was, I grew up and my mom was a stay at home mom. And so, um, I wouldn't say I was sheltered, but I definitely, um, had a very, um, supportive environment. And so when I got to college and I was alone and there wasn't that support system there, um, I, I was challenged. My first two semesters were pretty challenging from an academic perspective. Um, First of all, I, you know, I need to study to get good grades. I'm not one of those students that can just get good grades to get good grades. And so all of a sudden I find myself with all this free time and what do I do with it? So time management wasn't really something I learned in high school only because I, I was so programmed. I had, you know, sports, I had my involvement. So I was so programmed. So actually that's why I sought out a job. I wanted some structure, um, you know, beyond the classroom and the socialization um, to have something that I could spend my time so that I had limited time to study. So that forced me to actually study in the time that I had. Um, so, you know, I really, that phonathon job that I found the flyer for, and honestly, it was the highest paying job on campus. That's why I went for it. Do you recall um, what, uh, what kind of cash you were bringing in there? Uh, you know, I, what the hourly, what the hourly, I think it was probably like $8 or something. I mean, yeah. it was pretty, pretty small, but it was the largest paying job on campus at yeah. that time. And so, and there were bonuses associated with success. So if you um, were the top caller, you got a, like a cash uh, bonus. So of course I was driven to get those cash bonuses too, because, you know, I'm paying for my education. That means, you know, food and everything. So uh, I was really driven to, to make as much as I could in that, that phone-a-thon job really did. I mean, Provide that. I'm going to kind of skip ahead, but what you just said, it resonates so much. I was driven to hit that cash bonus, which we're happy to do for students. What about gift officers? Yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to say I'm, um, I'm probably the first in the state university system that we just got approved with our foundation board to provide um, a financial award um, when we hit the $50 million mark and the $75 million mark. And actually we're not just doing it for gift officers. We're doing it for the entire advancement team okay. because I realized the value um, in retaining the talent in reaching our goals. Um, and so we, we believe in team shared. Why? why and, and this is not just a you thing, but like, why was it completely okay for a student caller to yeah. get a cash bonus in 1996 and in 2023 we're advocating to the board to basically just treat the rest of the staff the way that student callers have always been treated like where is the philosophical disconnect well i think for us at Selm State it was never really um i don't think the board first of all they weren't resistant at all they realize how important it is um and i don't i just don't think there was a culture of it. I, don't, I, I honestly don't think it was an intentional leave out in any way. I just don't think there was a culture of it and we're a nonprofit, right? That word nonprofit, um, I think lends itself to, to the idea that we can't compensate people for the good work they're doing. And I actually don't necessarily agree with right. that. I think we'll thrive if we actually recognize and support the talent as best we can. There are limitations for that, for me at Salem State, obviously we're in a state environment um, and our salaries are measured across, you know, the system as well as within the institution. So sometimes I'm limited in what I can actually pay my employees. So we try to create 
the best culture we can so that they want to be a part of it. Um, and then where I can advocate for things like, you know, this financial incentive plan that we're about to roll out. So um, my goal is if my team has and is in the best environment possible internally, they're going to treat our donors um, the best. And we want to have the best donor experience in the state of Massachusetts. That's our goal. So know how I feel about that topic. So, uh, all right, well, take me back to your own student calling experience. What made you the best student caller? Like, did it click right away? Was there something innate about how you'd been raised or was there, you know, was it just that, that, that cash carrot that was driving it? I mean, tell me, tell me more about it. Well, my mom, I think I said she was a stay, stay at home mom, but she did a lot for the community. She was, um, and did, and was the head of all the fundraisers in, in, in West Valley, New York. Um, and so, you know, I think I, by virtue of proximity learned a lot from her. Um, and she probably would laugh hearing that. Um, but, you know, she was doing the sub runs for, you know, band and she was doing, you know, raising money for, um, you know, uniforms for sports, you know, she was constantly raising money. And so I, I just saw what she was doing, I think, but I think it, probably some of it is in the nature of who I am. Um, I love to connect with people. Um, and I think that was what I was successful with on the phone was connecting with people and, and helping to bring them back to campus, um, to their experience and tying it to mine and how preserving that for the future is important. So do any of those conversations stick with you, you know, specifically or in general? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'll never forget. I was in a sorority. So, you know, my favorite was calling, um, sorority, um, sisters or even just, um, other sororities. Cause you know, that was an easy one to connect with in terms of experience, um, and kind of walking down memory lane. Um, there are a lot of really good stories that come out of those moments where you're, um, I don't know, honored to be the recipient of information someone's sharing with you because you know it's part of what makes them proud to be an alum. Um, and I think I carry that forward today and the conversations I have with Salem State alumni. Um, you know, they they want their stories to be heard. They want to connect back to the place that they, you know, hold fond memories. Uh, and that's often what we do uh, when we're on the front lines connecting with alumni about the institution. It does make you wonder why we don't do more kind of interest-based segmentation around, uh, you know, especially around student outreach. Um, why not just have you only call those sorority members if that was such a natural connection and then align the fraternities with the representative today? And maybe some schools do that, but it just seems, you know, where you could do it by degree or by where they grew up or their high school. And we have so many data points where it would likely just create that much more natural connection, but it feels like so often it's been a little round robin. And then when the roulette wheel hits sorority sister to sorority sister, it's like, ding, 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 ding. But that's way more random than it should be, or maybe I'm wrong. No, I, I mean, I mean, back in the nineties, <laughs> we were on paper phone-a-thon cards. So, you know, you only were as good as the piece of paper you had in front of you. And sometimes you didn't even what's, know. What's paper? <laughs> Tell me about it. <laughs> right? Like 
if it didn't even list that they were in a sortie, you had to discover that information. Unreal. Um, Unreal. So uh, we've come a long way in that regard. Now we know all of that. And I'm not convinced that we, like we have so much more data. We have so much more ability to surface it, et cetera. But I'm not convinced that our use of it in ensuring that the Cheryl of today is connecting in the in the manner that would be so much more natural, no? Yeah, I think sometimes we're limited by the technology and our ability to use the technology um, because um, it's all about usability. You know, if you, you can put everything in the system, but you have no ability to get it out, uh, you're not going to be successful. Um, well, somebody should start a company work on that. We've got uh, we got some some more to do for I think sure. Everybody's working on that. <laughs> more to do, more to come. Um, okay, so so basically, you never leave college then. So uh, you get hooked, and then essentially immediately start at Harvard, working in the annual fund or, or you know in advancement at least. How did you think to go from student side hustle to career, yeah. uh, and what led you to Cambridge? Um. Actually, a mentor, Mary Canali, who is still actually at Oswego. She's the head of um, fundraising now there. Um, but at the time, she was the director of major gifts. And I wrote letters for her uh, to send to donors um, as a student in the office. So I got pulled in to sort of run and help with a golf classic. I helped, you know, with major gift fundraising. I was kind of her student employee, if you will. Um, so I was looking to apply for business jobs, um, sales and marketing and uh, using my business degree. Um, and she goes, well, have you thought about fundraising? And I said, is that a career? I literally said, is that a career? She's like, um, that's what I do. <laughs> and um, so she started pointing me to job opportunities. And I knew I wanted to move to a city because I didn't want to go back to um, the little town that I grew up in. So I actually applied to three different jobs, three different cities. And I said, the first call I get, I'm going to move to that city. Um, and it was Harvard. Harvard called um, about six days after uh, I left campus for an interview. And I said to my parents, I'm packing my car up. I'm headed out to Boston. I had some ties to the area because I was a nanny on the Cape. So I knew some some people in Boston. So um, so I did that and never sort of looked back. That was in 98. Um, so I was lucky um, that that phone call led to a job opportunity. Um, and, um, I had one wonderful mentor, Greta Morgan, um, who's at Holy Cross now. Um, she sort of took me under her wing and taught me everything she knew. In fact, when she went on maternity leave, I had the chance to take and run the annual giving department. Um, and lucky for me, she took on another job at Harvard when she came back and, um, I was then promoted a couple of different times into what was eventually her role. Um. So, uh, you know, I think it's people along the way that have really taken an interest in advancing my career. Um, and, and she's one of them that I'm very fortunate with. You know, the good thing about working at Harvard was I, I feel like I learned sort of the best from the best. Um, and then from there, I went on to do great things for other institutions um, that perhaps needed um a resource and someone that had more experience. Um, so most of our listeners haven't and won't work in advancement at Harvard. Uh, what are one or two or three things that if they could spend a few years working at Harvard, 
they might better appreciate either about what it means to be the best of the best or the sector in general, or maybe just Harvard specifically? Harvard knows its story. Um, it knows, you know, its case. It knows its priorities. I, I always felt like when I was at the School of Education, we knew, you know, what made us exceptional and we knew how to talk about that. That was one of the things that I definitely took away was know your story, know how um, that will resonate with your alumni. Um, and so I think Harvard was really good at, at, at telling stories. Um, I also think they treat their donors very well. Um, you know, and they have an entirely um, tight peer network that um, I think most institutions are probably jealous of. Um, there's this idea of that, you know, you need to give, right? There's, you know, you just know you need to get that culture of giving that runs so rich and deep in their history um, and how they intentionally built it over time, I think. Um, they resource, um, they resource their programs so that they're successful as well. And I think making sure you're advocating, I learned that advocating for the right resources was important to um, the success of, you know, your fundraising operation. If you're not resourcing it appropriately, it's very hard to grow it. Um, Can I ask, I mean, you, you are now working uh at a very different institution with a different mission, a different focus, a different story. And it sounds like you, uh, that it was easy to get behind the Harvard story and advocate for philanthropy at Harvard. And I know you feel that way at Salem State as well, but you see the next mega gift to Harvard and without a doubt, there's going to be backlash. Uh, I really think it's one of the, true bipartisan uh, sort of experiences in our country right now, which is whether you're on the right or the left or in between, if Harvard gets a big gift, somebody's gonna be upset about it. And um, how do you feel about that? Because you could very easily be the person that would say, that's crazy if they had just given 50 million of that 500 million to Salem State, here's the transformational impact that it would have here. Harvard doesn't need it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you've also worked at Harvard and made that pitch to Harvard donors. And so just tell me how you think about that aspect of philanthropy. I think there's a place for a Harvard and a place for a Salem State. I think they're completely different missions. I mean, Harvard is solving some of the world's most challenging problems. And Salem State is educating a population that wouldn't, go, wouldn't have a place to go to college. Um, so they're just two very different but important missions. Um, oh, you're on mute. <laughs> Not mutually exclusive, but I feel like that is the way that it's like philanthropy is sort of being pitted against each other. Now, you know, these same mega donors will sometimes then make a big donation to a community college the same week or the same month. That gets almost no press. Um, but when it goes to Harvard, you know, that's when there's kind of this this uproar and 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 so it is really interesting to hear hear your perspective. Yeah, no, I I you know, I want Harvard to be successful and I want Salem State to be successful. I think there is enough philanthropy out there for both. Um and I really appreciate that um I think many people in, you know, the greater community um and even in Boston are starting to 
pay attention to missions like Salem State, um, first gen students, you know, 40% of our students are uh, students of color, um, you know, nearly, you know, 40% of them are Pell eligible, which puts them in a, a financial situation that's often challenging to navigate college. But if not for Salem State, where would those students go? So I, I, I think each mission is critical um, to the success of our country, honestly. I love it. And I want to talk more about Salem State in a bit here. But uh, you, you made the move to Beth Israel, uh, which is where all three Grinna boys were born. And so tell me about the move to the healthcare world. Uh, I guess it's the only time you left college, although they're tightly connected with the academic community as well. So maybe only a brief, uh, brief externship from college. Yes. Uh, what should everybody know about moving into an environment like that relative to the higher ed sector? Yeah, it's a teaching hospital. So I, I still really didn't leave um, college, if, if you will. Um, so I was actually recruited over there um, from someone that left Harvard um, to be in a leadership position. And so um, I actually had a fear of hospitals and partly why I took the job. Um, I, I lost my grandfather um, in a hospital. So at a very sort of, I think, point in my life that it was pretty devastating. So um, I said, I'm going to leap in head first and see if I can get over my fear, which obviously I had to go to a hospital every single day to go to work. So I'm happy to say I've got over my fear of hospitals. Um, you know, I think the thing that I missed about higher ed when I went to work in the hospital environment was, um, the positive nature in which people associate with higher ed and their experience in higher ed versus a hospital. Um, you know, I often find myself in conversations where I, I was sitting across a donor and they were sharing their story, but there was a lot of emotion that was coming through and it wasn't always positive emotion. It was sadness. Um, and I, I think as a positive person had a hard time with that. Um, it just, for me, um, was really difficult. I mean, it, it's very important work. It's the best hospital in Boston, in my opinion, the most compassionate care. My doctor's still there. Um, and I think they're doing exceptional work. Um, but for me, I wanted to get back into that higher ed environment. I love uh, the cyclical nature of higher ed. And, um, you know, there's a new crop of commencement uh, uh, graduates every year in that sense of pride and excitement that comes in crossing the stage. Uh, and of course, and then when you welcome the new incoming class um, and that idea that um, you're really changing lives. Um, saving lives is important, don't get me wrong. But I think, you know, at Salem State, we're educating people who are saving lives, um, nurses, for example. Yeah. And uh, I mean, talk about facing your fears. That's like being afraid of flying and becoming a flight attendant. So yeah, yeah. yeah. level, um, but ultimately wanted to get back to campus. It sounds like had the opportunity to join Emerson College, talk about a unique angle, historically a, a, a unique story for sure, um, and in a different place in the Massachusetts college landscape. Absolutely. Um, Emerson, you know, was one of the most creative places I think I ever worked, and I took a lot of the creativity from that and carry it forward today, but um, the student population is uh, exceptionally talented and creative, and we got to do a lot of fun things. And people are listening right now. We have listeners all over the country, some all over the world, and they're saying, what is Emerson College? But, you know, Jay Leno went to Emerson College. More recently, Jennifer Coolidge, who has just been 
uh, you know, Let's getting not Henry Winkler <laughs> and um, also the creator of Friends and Will and Grace. Um, so, very, yeah, so it's basically just a media sort of entertainment powerhouse right in the Boston Common, essentially. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I was lucky, I was there, you know, I think five and a half years. Um, the challenge I had there, though, is I'd five leaders, five vice presidents. I reported to a president at one point um, in those five years. So there was a lot of turnover at the top, um, which uh, didn't create the stability I think I was looking for to really make change. Um, you just get one boss acclimated to, uh, and then they'd move on essentially. So there was a lot of um, transition that happened in those five years. I think I learned I can work for anyone though. <laughs> Um, that was one of the takeaways I took from that is I think I could work with anyone. I think very few people would say that, Cheryl. So uh, that's uh, that's a really interesting perspective. And um, yeah, I mean, for sure, you know, change management is a battle. And I think it's a reminder that, you know, there's kind of such a thing as Emerson College, but at a at a, you know, sort of team member level, it's so much more about like who is your manager? Who is your leader? Um, where it's not really about like everybody talks about Harvard or Emerson or Salem State, but it's really like it's Cheryl and it's your direct report and you know how they're engaging and inspiring the team. And and I feel like that's the piece that, as sort of an outsider, is almost impossible to 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 really understand. Yeah, and honestly, I I was really eager to do a campaign one. When I was there, so I even encouraged the board at the time to do a feasibility study, and it was recommended that we move forward with a campaign. Um, but ultimately, it, it really never got taken, you know, beyond that feasibility study or that um, desire to do it. The board really just wasn't um, at the time supportive of a campaign. In fact, um, when Lee Pelton was arriving as president, I helped onboard him. Uh, with helping them to get to know who the donors were and, and such. And, um, you know, I'd asked him before I um, ended up coming to Salem State. Um, I said, you know, I'll stay if you can tell me we'll be in a campaign in a couple of years, uh, or at least, you know, planning the feasibility study of a campaign. And he said, I can't make that commitment to you. Um, so you should take this opportunity at Salem State to be the campaign manager for what was then 10,000 Reasons. And um, well, it wasn't actually 10,000 reasons. It was just a campaign. <laughs> it became 10,000 reasons. Um, but I really, I admire him for being honest with me in that moment, because for me, one of the pieces in my career that I had yet to have was sort of the beginning, middle and end of a campaign. I'd been at the end of a campaign at Harvard. I'd been at the beginning of a campaign at Beth Israel, um, but I was really looking to be a part of you know, the whole thing. Um, and so that was kind of the opportunity I was looking for next in, in my career. Um, and that's where Salem State came in. So partly the career opportunity and then partly being in Salem, different mission, you know, different uh, uh, set of uh, objectives, different history. And so, uh, it, it you know, and, and I think it's fair to sort of say like the primary driver was the the kind of alignment of professional opportunity. Um, but I know that you've become just such a champion and believer in the mission. Yes. Um, immediate or did it take some time to really? It was pretty immediate, honestly, because I really quickly learned how similar it was to 
Oswego State University, you know, being a public comprehensive university, um, really serving the region and not only from a student perspective, from a job perspective, not too dissimilar to, you know, Oswego State where I went. So um, I immediately connected with the student body. Um, I had a chance to work with some student workers early on in my campaign manager role. Um, and and just the people. I mean, it, it truly is a, a wonderful community be, to be a part of. And it still is the reason I get up every day excited to come to work is, um, you know, it's the leadership. Um, and I, that's both volunteer and um, President Keenan. It's the amazing team and advancement and our partners we work with on campus. Everyone is here um, supporting student success in a way that I've never seen at any institution I've ever been at. There has been an 11% decline in undergraduate enrollment in Massachusetts from before the pandemic to now. How do you feel that at Salem State? How do you navigate that? Uh, recognizing that you're truly one of those inflection institutions of, do I go at all or do I not? How is that affecting you? Um, you know, enrollment is a, enrollments everywhere are being affected. Um, but I think we're not an institution that's sitting and watching and, and letting it happen. We're being strategic. Um, we are what is called an emerging HSI, Hispanic Serving Institution. Um, the largest growing college age population in the communities we serve is the Hispanic community. Um, and we realize, um, you know, just we're a couple percentage of points away from getting that federal designation. Um, and so we realize preparing and meeting those students wherever they come from is important um, in the student experience. And so we focused a lot of our time and our strategic plan on becoming a serving institution, an institution that serves students to the best of our ability. And I think that's gonna differentiate us, um, not only with the state university system, but I think in the state of Massachusetts, um, we wanna be the best um, Hispanic serving institution. We'll be the second in the state of Massachusetts. And so is there a specific goal, a specific milestone that you all are working towards to achieve that? Certainly student persistence is what we have our eye on, is ensuring that every student has equal you know, access to success. Uh, and that plays out certainly in our campaign and everything we're raising money for, it supports that, making sure our students get to graduation because um, our students can't afford to come for one or two years and then leave because of a, a short financial um, you know, milestone that they can't meet because then they leave with further debt, further expenses within a no degree to show for it. And it just sets them and their families back even further. So we realize the um, enormous, enormous responsibility we have to ensure their success. And so every single thing that we're doing in the campaign is working to, you know, have the highest percentage of student persistence we can possibly have. Well, this is timely. We're recording on May 11th, and I had just read an article, um, a, a story that was in WBUR that featured your colleague, Nate Bryant, who leads Salem State's uh, student success efforts. And it just struck me as being such an amazing example about the true intersection of advancement and student success. I read about this 
micro grant program, my understanding is $6,500 can be awarded to students that are identified as high risk of dropping out. Just tell me about like the assembly line that goes into making something like that happen because you've got to A, be able to understand which students are at high risk of dropping out, B, ensure that you've got that story that you can then wrap up to see, go and find donors that want to step in and, and really potentially be the difference maker for those students. And then ultimately that must just create amazing impact stories. And, and as somebody, you know, describing your background, I can certainly empathize with like just the cost pressures that students feel and, and, and it's gotta be incredibly rewarding when you get that right. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I have to go back like probably four years at this point when we started to think about the Viking completion grants. Um, it was honestly, it came from a donor who was interested in understanding the key moments when a student, you know, when we lose a student because of financial reasons. So um, in partnership with um, our financial aid team, we all sat in a room um, or, you know, couple of people from my team, myself, and a couple of people from my financial aid. And there was someone pulling data and it was a huge brainstorming discussion about how do we, you know, what does the data look like? Where, where is it that we can capture those students who are losing at key moments? And that's when, um, you know, the Viking completion grants were developed and that concept was developed. And we had a, a great champion that helped us launch that um, in Kim Gassett Schiller and Philip Schiller, um, who made a $5 million gift and, and honestly um, launched the program immediately. We already have had tremendous success um, uh, in the retention of those students as a result. Um, but, you know, you can't create moments like this. I mean, we were at the Salem State Series. I was sitting next to Kim. Um, we were listening to Big Poppy. Big Poppy is done, right? And over comes a student unsolicited who'd heard Kim's name because Kim sponsored the series and, and said, you know, I have to thank you. I graduate this May. Um, it was May 6th that we were at the series last year. I graduate this May because of you. And she started crying and Kim started crying. I mean, this wasn't even orchestrated, but this, this genuine moment was with this student who didn't even identify who she was, but how important it was to her and her daughter who was going to watch her graduate in May. Um, so, you know, fast forward a year later, we're launching the campaign on Saturday. We found the student and we connected her with Kim at the event and they, you know, had some moments to share in that. So, you know, I, I think to say that the impact of that program has been enormous would be an understatement uh, for sure. It's so amazing. And it's such a clear example. And I contrast it with um, the more general ask that people get, hey, it's May 11th, please give to the annual fund before June 30th. I just got that yesterday uh, from, from one of the institutions I'm involved with. And you contrast that with, hey, Brent, for $1,100, there's a junior single mom named Cheryl who has 
you know, two kids and is on the cusp of needing to drop out, would you be willing to make a gift of $1,100? It's like such a different ask. And it's like, how do we, how do we scale that where you, even as a, you know, smaller donor in the context of any campaign giving pyramid feel like you're changing a life. And I mean, that's the rub because everybody wants unrestricted annual, but as a donor, I want to do what Mary Schiller did, you know, even if it's at a much smaller scale, um, how do we figure that out? Yeah, well, we're, we're doing that actually. Um, you know, during the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of discussion about, do we continue fundraising? And I was like, well, we can't not fundraise. Our students need us now more than ever. Um, so we continued doing that. And we had a student emergency fund, um, but it was never really utilized in a way that it is used now. And, um, you know, one of the things that we do is explain what, you know, 100, 250, 500 in that fund can you know, make a difference for our students. And, and and so every single donor at every level can resonate with the idea of they're changing lives um, truly in a way that they wouldn't probably be able to at other places because um, $300 could be mean the difference between an A and a C even um, for books. Um, we've heard stories where students are sharing books or having to go to the library uh, and read books, uh, you know, out of the library share share the library books with other friends you know because they they just can't afford the books um so we try to do that friend as much as we can because we realize um you know that that's the story that used to be where you could say it's going for technology and you know that general annual giving jargon um that i think you know much of the 90s and 2000s was about i think that is gone um we've we need to do better. We need to do better. You know, and I think from a technology perspective, we have made good strides, but we need to do better too, because, you know, how can we create and scale those, you know, the digital versions of the authentic connection that Mary felt with that student, which of course, when you're giving at that level is going to have all of the stewardship orchestration that you could muster, but how do we apply that philosophically and technologically so that if I were a $500 donor, donor who actually helped the student get through school, that I kind of get that feeling too. And then I have the loop closed in a way where I know like it, it, it wasn't just, you know, hypothetically your $500 could illustratively help a student that is, you know, generally like Cheryl, but it's like, Brent, you helped Cheryl and Cheryl wants to let you know that she really appreciates it. You know, that's obviously we're doing a lot of work in that regard, but there's so much more. Those personalized videos, there's, you yeah, know, personalized, but doing so in a way like, yes, the technology is there, but how do we make it even simpler, nearly frictionless so that as a, you know, small team or a big team, yeah. you can do that hundreds or thousands of times without having to do all of the high touch coordination that maybe is going to be reserved for the very top of the pyramid. So you just launched Meet the Moment, $75 million campaign, lots of positive press uh, this week. And um, really, I'm sure a reflection of years, maybe I, I know for you a decade plus of work, but when you think about Salem State 2030, for example, what do you hope you're able to say 
after this campaign? That we've transformed the way in which we serve students um, at the institution. Um, we've always been really good at serving students well, um, but you know the efficiencies as well as the the financial supports, um, and so that every student who wants a degree, regardless of their financial ability, can get it. That is you know, I think where we need to meet the moment. And if we're successful, this campaign will, will get us there. And that is a message that can resonate with direct members of the Salem State community, alumni, et cetera. But you also, I imagine, have corporate partners that want more alignment with skills and talent pipeline. And then you've got general philanthropists who might believe in the first gen experience or want to support a Hispanic serving institution. And so in a certain regard, um, almost anybody could get inspired by the Salem State mission. But if you start saying, well, our prospect pool is anybody, you're going to quickly become overwhelmed. And so how do you balance like broadening the donor base without just chasing every possible person that, you know, has given to related causes? I always say the Salem State mission can resonate with anyone pretty much. Um, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of it is referrals. So, um, or we've had a, a wonderful um, outcome of some PR from some big ifs that have brought in donors that have never been associated with the institution because they see the impact of those larger gifts. And um, in a sense, it's social proofing, right? You know? If the Cummings Foundation supported the institution with a $10 million gift, then there must be doing something over there at Salem State, right? Um, so we actually, we've had a few inbound calls as a result of some of those larger gifts, but I, I, think, um, I think the community around us understands the value of having Salem State in the community. But certainly, you know, we're starting to extend into Boston um, and some of the large business um, businesses in Boston are supporting us, seeing the value that we have from a pipeline perspective, um, and certainly, you know, hospitals in terms of um, our nursing program. So, you know, it, it can be overwhelming, to be honest, um, but I think we have a wonderful opportunity of telling the Salem State st story and hopefully doing it in a way that inspires and brings in new people. Um, but I always say the best thing we can do is create the best donor experience because people talk about their experience when they give to other people. And that um, we're seeing almost like a snowball effect um, in the way in which we um, we want our donors to feel uh, a part of the community, um, understand uh, the impact uh, and value the relationship with us um, that, that, you know, and leave feeling like gosh, that was the best experience I've ever had giving. I want to do it again. <laughs> and that. so I think word of mouth is our best um, our best ally right now, as well as obviously some intentional outreach that's being done, um, you know, with the frontline team, but um, certainly um, creating the best donor experience um, possible. Love that. Um... I do just want to ask, I've been getting some fun stories. You've been doing this for a long time, a lot of visits, trips, 
conversations. Any uh, anything on the blooper reel you're willing to share? Trips gone wrong? Asks that were way out of whack? I mean, any any stories that will uh, maybe create some <laughs> common ground with our listeners? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting. We we. We've kind of changed the way in which we talk with donors uh, with this campaign about five years ago. We did some training um, as a team. And, and so we've changed our pros. But I'll, I'll talk about when I was asking for gifts, right? Like just asking for a dollar amount. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it was we knew this person was well connected. We knew um, they had a lot of care for the institution and that they'd given significant amount of money over a period of time. And so you know, we went in with a very bold ask. And uh, I think the person, you know, we asked for a million dollars and uh, the person I think was surprised that we asked for such a large gift, but at the same time, um, you know, was, I don't don't want to say like tickled to death, like that we thought that they had the ability to do something like that. but I'll never forget it. And luckily that person stuck with us. Um, but it was sort of that moment where I realized, you know, projecting a number onto an individual didn't feel right. Um, but it was sort of like all I knew. Um, we have entirely different now. Entirely. It's so, it's so tricky because, uh, to the donor, you literally I'm just going to say you could have walked in and been asking for 50, 500, 5 million. And to both you and the donor, there's really no way to calibrate around that with the limited information at your disposal. They didn't know what they were walking into. You didn't know what you were walking into. And and how do you, there's a counter argument with, which is aim high and maybe you know, you can land in a, in a, in a spot that would have been, you know, that's the negotiating anchoring strategy. You know, we asked for a million, there's no possible way they're going to do it, but now whatever they might've imagined they could stretch to, maybe that gets lifted, but it sounds like you've changed the philosophy. So how do you think about calibrating now to make sure that you're not wildly under asking or over asking? So we say we don't ask. Um, We facilitate conversation that leads to the right amount. Um, so we we lead with how do you want to make a difference, you know, and then um, kind of walk them through a path of how that could look. You know, do you want to change one student's life? Do you want to change many students' lives? Do you want this to be a lasting gift? Do you want to make an immediate impact? We start with those key questions that then further facilitate um, larger gifts. But starting with how they want to make a difference certainly is the right place to start. Whereas we would just go in with what we thought they would want to give to based on their interests. Um, so a no assumptions approach, I guess. Um, and, you know, through, you know, much like you would with your doctor, right? Um, confirm, confirming what they say, you know, going, finding information, facilitating conversations with people on campus that are experts. Um, we always say those are the best moments when you can get a donor and someone who is really passionate on campus about the priority we're, we're raising money for talking. Um, it, 
it sort of sells itself and, and they want to make the deepest impact they can make um, walking away from those conversations. Um, so it's, it's a lot different um, than I think the way in which we approached our work five, five years ago. Thank you for sharing. I'm sure uh, that will be very relatable to many, many of our listeners. Um, I did have a full on, the closest story uh, that I've had like that was from one of our early teammates at Evertrue, uh, Jim Zimmerman, who worked at uh, Middlesex School for many years in, in Concord. And uh, he shared a like spit out the wine, almost heart attack level moment where he uh, wildly uh, over asked relative to what the donor was expecting, which uh, I'll never forget. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about where you are with the campaign and uh, if you're hiring and if folks want to learn more about opportunities at Salem State or just connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, so we, on Saturday, launched uh, the largest uh, campaign in state university history, $75 million. Uh, The good news is we had voted to go into a $50 million campaign in 2020, February 2020, just before the pandemic. Um, and so to be three years later in a position where we had to really reevaluate what the, the goal was ambitious enough for the needs on campus. Uh, and luckily we had um, a lot of donor support having just raised 40 million. Toward the 50, we made a decision to raise the campaign goal to 75 million before going public on Saturday. So very proud of my team and the work that they did um, kind of leading up to that. Um, but we're excited. We're out publicly now with Meet the Moment. Um, and uh, had a wonderful celebration on Saturday and rolled out a whole communication plan website, you know, the whole nine. Um, but, you know, we've got work to do. We've got 35 more million to raise. And I think I'm excited about what the next two to three years looks like and getting that goal. Love it. Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey, Cheryl, and for giving everybody more of a window into uh, your world and the mission at Salem State. And we really appreciate the longstanding uh, collaborations that we've had. And uh, this makes me even more excited for um, the responsibility that we have in working to elevate the donor experience and hopefully making uh, it a lot. Oh, and you asked if we have any jobs. We don't. Yeah. Tell me about the jobs. We don't, we don't have any jobs. They're all filled. And yeah. luckily, Luckily, we're retaining people. So this is uh, this is unheard of. Uh, I've I've done a hundred and I don't know fifty plus of these episodes, and I've never heard that sentence. So well done, congratulations! And thank you. That means everybody should pay even more attention to opportunities there. Yes, uh, you, you never know, but right now I'm happy to say we don't have any positions posted, which is exciting. Well, congrats on that. Thank uh, you. Wishes for that to continue. Um, and, and thank you. Thank you. And I'd encourage everybody to reach out to Cheryl on LinkedIn, let yeah. her know that you heard about this. And, uh, and with that, we can, we can wrap up Cheryl. Thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Brent. All right, Brent signing off with today's guest, Cheryl Webster Krause from Salem State University. Take care, everybody. 